What do you want? To do the podcast. Oh. All right. <laughs> Is that too much to ask? Evidently. I don't know. Have you tried upgrading any applications to Postgres 10 yet? Have I tried updating any applications to 10? I did not anticipate there being any issues. So if I have, I haven't noticed it, but I don't think that I have. I didn't anticipate there being any issues either. <laughs> and yet? I don't know if you saw the retweets I was sending out from uh, Crates.io status the oh, other night. Yeah, I saw that like things went crazy. I didn't know that was something you were going to blame on Postgres 10. <laughs> no, it, it was, I don't know what to blame it on yet. It sounds like it might be a bug in pg upgrade we're still figuring out what exactly happened but basically yeah the the i'm actually i should probably back up for some context on everything as well i've taken over along with ashley williams operations of crates.io as of about two weeks ago was this and, a hostile uh, takeover or uh you know. <laughs> no person who was previously managing operations had a baby yeah is focusing on that as well she should mm-hmm I remember it was a Sunday evening. I introduced a major bug into production on accident. And early Monday morning, an issue got opened. And, and the person who was managing this before is usually really, really on top of uh, like any major bugs. And this was like a bug that was preventing crates from getting uploaded sort of bad. Anyway, Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> I noticed the bug. I'm like, oh, she had her baby. <laughs> and then fixed a master, but then I didn't have production access, so frantically tried to get a hold of somebody mm -hmm. who could deploy, and then also, hey, I like I think maybe I should take care of this now since nobody who has access to production actively pays attention to this repo. And so we've been fixing all sorts of issues that we've that we encountered just from like getting access to it, such as there was no real monitoring or alerting setup. So that was the first thing we did was set up a pager duty rotation, which when you add monitoring to a thing that didn't previously have monitoring, you learn, oh, things are actually broken. Mm -hmm. So it involved getting paged at 3 a.m. like the first three nights after we did that. But anyways, I'm doing a lot of performance work on, on this. And one of the easy wins you can usually get if you have database performance issues is just upgrade to the latest Postgres version. Because pretty consistently, your database is faster on a new Postgres version. I'm also excited to get on Postgres 10 because they finally have logical replication built in, which will be great for future up updates because it can potentially require little to no downtime instead of several minutes like it does now. I mean, you could do the same thing with PG logical today, but it's kind of a pain. So you mean it just it replicates to another server? Is that what what's the difference here? Well, so the replication normally what it does it is it just streams the write ahead log directly. Mm -hmm. So that's literally just a file that is these are the bytes to write to this other file. Which means that a replica on Postgres 9 or earlier is a bit-for-bit -bit replica of the primary. Everything, everything is 100% identical. Uh, logical replication is when it actually just says, this is the data that's going to get modified on this table. And so that means that when you're doing, I actually don't, I guess binary replication, I actually don't know what the, ter what the, the term for not logical replication is. I think it's, I'm going to call it binary replication. I don't know if that's correct or not. But right, you can only stream to something that has an identical storage format which is generally the exact same version of Postgres. Whereas for this, you can stream it to a database that is of a completely different version. You could stream it to a database that has different indexes. Like if you just want to, if you had a separate database set up for analytics and you had, and for that you want to have some, some indexes that are very, very expensive to write. So you wouldn't want it on your, on your main server. But the, the main one is you can, you can replicate to a, 
different Postgres versions. So you just, you know, you spin up a new replica on the new version, set up logical replication, connecting the two, wait for it to get mostly caught up, and then stop writes for, you know, the last second or two it needs to get fully caught up. Yeah. This is assuming that, that your write volume is low enough that it will ever catch up, of course, but we're nowhere near that being an issue. But, but yeah, so that was the, mo- the most recent issue was I decided I wanted to upgrade Postgres, so I scheduled some downtime. And luckily, our lowest traffic time of day is 6.30 my time, which is 12.30 a.m. UTC. Convenient for you. Yes. So, you know, put everything in maintenance mode, went through the whole process, spun up a, spun up a replica, waited for it to catch up, put the app in maintenance mode, wait for, waited for it to get all the way caught up, ran PG upgrade on it, waited for that to finish, switched that to the primary, brought everything back online, waited, you know, went to crates.io to make sure that it worked because I figured... If it was going to be broken, it was going to be broken in a way that like it would blow up in my face. That's what I would have figured. Yep. Yeah. So I waited for about two or three minutes, got a page, which I ignored because it was paging me the whole time. Because when you put a Heroku app in maintenance mode, Heroku's alerts still trigger. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, everything was 502ing because I had told it to 502 every request, I got paged. And so I got paged right before I left. I figured, oh, it's just it's just like a delayed thing from that. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine. I'm going to take my laptop with me. I had dinner plans. I'm like, I'm going to bring my laptop with me just in case. And then after the fifth page on my way to dinner, I realized, oh, okay. And so I looked <laughs> I, and so I'm like, oh, no, yeah, this is an actual elevated 500 rate. Looked at the logs and saw that it was on the download endpoint. So immediately I was like, okay, no, we need, we need to revert this. And then open a support ticket. Hadn't thought much of it until I was browsing the subreddit today. Well, so the, the Heroku people asked if I could do like a dry run upgrade and see if I could reproduce the issue, which makes sense, too. That was, you know, reasonable for me to go in and just see, like, was this a random glitch? Mm-hmm. Is the solution really just to try it again? But I was a little concerned about reproducing it because it was just a, a query that implied some data corruption. I actually never tried running the exact query from one of the requests that failed. But, well, and I don't know. I don't know if I could. Yeah, I could figure out the bind params. But I was a little worried that if it's just random data corruption, like, well, what if the same records don't get corrupted this time? And so I was a little worried about reproducing the issue to see if, you know, the same thing occurred. But then I went to the, the Rust subreddit and I noticed I saw a thread from that evening that was titled crates.io missing crates. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's not I mean, this was 500 when trying to update certain rows and they were in the version downloads table. That doesn't sound right. And so I connected. I, I kept the, the corrupted database around to try and figure out what's going on. So I connected to it and did select count star from crates. And lo and behold, three and a half thousand crates weren't there. <laughs> so that makes it a little easier to, to reproduce. Right. So I just tried a dry run right before we recorded. And this time, 12,000 crates were missing, which is, you know, 75% of our data. Interesting. <laughs> or at least on that table. So this is after running, you're just running the PG upgrade command. Yeah. And Which so, literally just runs the PG upgrade command line tool. Right. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And this is you're running this against Heroku Postgres. So there yeah. could it could be a, a thing with Heroku Postgres. It could be a thing with PG upgrade. It could be it a could thing. It could be a thing I did wrong. It could be a specific interaction between all of those things and the data that's in the database. And who knows? But this is why we pay for Heroku, right? So that their support people can come help me. I guess. It depends on how much you pay them, maybe. I don't know. Forget yeah. what kind of support you get based on. I've always had really anytime I've had to actually get support from Heroku Postgres folks, it's been awesome. <laughs> the yeah. first time, first time was when someone who shall remain nameless dropped the Turpentine database <laughs> in production, <laughs> or didn't didn't drop it, but just ran database cleaner against it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then yeah. uh, we needed to contact them and be like, hey. <laughs> we actually thought we were under some sort of attack at first because it was like, what is happening? And then we looked through the logs and it was like, this looks exactly like database cleaner. <laughs> I'm always just really happy when Goose is the one who responds to my tickets. Oh, right. Does this he respond to Heroku Postgres tickets or is it is he is He's replied to the majority of the tickets I've opened. Awesome. <laughs> no, it's been it's been a while though just fi- like cuz the app was in not great shape when when we first came on board and mm-hmm. like just this is all stuff I should be better at, but it's been nice to get some some more recent experience with operations mm-hmm. things. You know, like the first thing that uh, I wanted to fix after getting monitoring set up was oh hey I think it's what h12 when requests fully time out yep. because they took more than 30 seconds there's a lot of h12s that seems bad so started looking at trying to figure out what is the thing that's erroring because all we have is heroku's built-in graphs mm-hmm. like I, I can't i can't set up a new relic on this because this is a backend written in rust using a bespoke web framework that was made specifically to make this app because it predates any other rust web framework existing so even if somebody did support Rust, they wouldn't support this specific framework. So I have no way, for example, in the graph to drill down and see response time by endpoint or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But so I basically have their built-in stuff and logs, which we're using paper trail for that. And turns out, like, I haven't I haven't messed around with their new metric stuff. They're, for what it is, it's really good. The Heroku stuff, you mean? Yeah, yeah, especially the dashboards that they have for Postgres, where you can see, you know, exactly which queries are taking the most time and, and mm-hmm. how their execution time is changing over time. That does sound awesome. I've not worked on a project that has been on Heroku Postgres in quite some time, so <laughs> I also have not seen it. That was the, the the thing that helped me solve the H12 issue was I looked in the logs and, oh, cool, it's hitting downloads, which wasn't super useful because we didn't have timeout set on anything. Mm-hmm. So the only timeout they would hit was uh, the Heroku timeout. And I did, I did notice that the request was finishing on our end. We tried to send a response after 32 seconds. So there's that. Okay. So it wasn't like it was sitting there for 12 minutes <laughs> crunching right. on this query. Well, that's the, so I didn't know if it was a database issue because that, that endpoint does three things. Basically it runs an upsert statement that, which is basically like increment a counter that indicates this version was downloaded on this date. Mm-hmm. And then it hits S3 to get assigned URL for that version of that crate. And then it sends the, the response to the client. And so probably the sending the response was not the thing timing out. So I wanted to, you know, I, I, figured, I figured it was probably the database because what else would it be? But, you know, first thing, go in, set some time out. So was it that we were exhausting our database connections and it was hanging up, uh, hanging on trying to get a connection from the, the pool? So set that time out lower. Mm-hmm. Was it hanging on the query itself? Set that time out lower. And then, you know, if neither of those errored, then it was S3 was, was the way I, I figured. I would go, but while I was waiting for everything to get merged and deployed, I started I started looking through the graphs on Heroku Postgres dashboard, which I just you know discovered for the first time. I was like, oh hey, there's that query. It, oh, it's the slowest query, and it takes between one millisecond and and thirty seconds. Hmm. Okay, I think that's a lock contention issue. Oh right. Okay. So then I just grepped the app like, what is hitting this table? And we have a script. So basically the way our, our downloads work is they're semi-real time because we don't have scaling problems yet. So we can still do that. Basically, we update this counter synchronously every time a request is made. So number of downloads per version by date is, actu- is actually real time. And then we have a background job that's running basically in a loop, sleeping for five minutes in between runs, where then it will go pull all of these rows in batches of 1,000 and set the counted number to be equal to the downloads number. 
then we have a separate, a second table, which is the number of downloads per crate by day. And then, so updates those rows. And then we have a third one that is just the uh, number of downloads all time for a version. And then also number of downloads all time for a crate. We update those. And then finally, a global all versions all time counter. Total number of downloads, right? Yep. And so we do all that in batches of 1,000. And that each batch of 1,000 was wrapped in a transaction. And the very first thing it does, it lo- so it loops through these 1,000. The very first thing it does is says, okay, cool. Update version download, set downloads equals counted. Or counted equals downloads, which locks the row. And that will continue to lock the row until the entire batch of 1,000 is finished. Right. And this would sometimes take upwards of 30 seconds finished batch. So is the solution then to do this not as often? No, it was to wrap each individual row in a transaction instead of wrapping right. the batch. But then what happens then, if one of those updates fails? I mean, that's fine because everything that, that it did process is still correct. But how would it know to read? So like, let's say I'm trying to like, I've got my crate, right? Version one. And it's going through and it's like, okay, my crate version one was was downloaded once on this date. So it updates the date one, and then it says like, oh, my crate version one, total number of downloads for this, we need to increment. And then it fails the next three updates that it needs to make for like the, you know, my crate's total downloads and Rust's right. like crates.io's turn of downloads. And the transaction gets rolled back. I'm still wrapping each row that we're processing in a transaction. Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. The one thing that did have to change is before it was updating the global counter once per thousand rows. Now it has to update it once per row, which okay. is fine. Yep. So, so that was that was the first one. You know, that solved the lock contention issue. It was still taking longer to do for that script to run than it ought to have, though. So I've messed around with indexes and found a way to better index that. Coincidentally, actually, right when this was happening, one of the tables that it hits in that script grew to, well, actually, version downloads specifically grew to a size that the index it was using was no longer valid hmm. or no longer being used. So that also, like, coincidentally, right around the same time, there's actually a lot worse. of things that happen coincidentally right around the same time, like within a day, mm-hmm. that are completely unrelated, but just interesting that they all happen so close together. But yeah, so that table grew so that the index was no longer being used, so we had to fix the index. That was easy. But then we still we had this open issue that had been open for about a week that was the homepage sometimes takes six seconds to load. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this this was a thing like, okay, cool. So now we've lowered the load on our database server because there's less lock contention going on and fewer open transactions and connections. So, but that nothing that we had done affects anything that the homepage hits. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and so, of course, it was still taking sometimes six seconds to load. What was really weird is it would like sometimes be almost instant. Sometimes it would take six seconds. So then we started looking through the logs and found some irresponsible bots that started crawling the crates cert. I call it index because that's what this is. It's like AP, slash API slash v1 slash crates. Mm-hmm. But then that's confusing for me to call it because the giant Git repo that contains just the metadata for every crate, which is used for dependency resolution, is also the index. Right. But it's also the search page. So I call it crate search. But it's also if you click all crates, it just goes to the same one same point. And specifically, that endpoint includes recent downloads, which is... Mm-hmm. Slow-ish to calculate. It's joined to crate downloads where date is within the last 90 days, group by crate ID, and then sum them up. And it's like, yeah, that's a thing that takes a non-zero amount of time. After after we got everything resolved, it was something that took about 500 milliseconds. Right, which is a lot to add to to a request response cycle just for that one part of that query. Never mind anything else that's happening. It is, but it's not unreasonable. Like, yeah, some endpoints will inherently be slow. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But the thing is, you know, we're a database bound app. Our CPU load on our web servers is is next to zero, just because it's Rust, it's fast. So database load is our main bottleneck, and we're on the lowest production tier of a Heroku database. We could have solved this also just by upgrading to the next tier of Heroku database, and that would have been fine. But not doing that is forcing us to solve some of these issues, which we're gonna have to solve eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things we need to do is just get proper rate limiting set up. But the most immediate step was, hey, let's just set up some infrastructure so that when we see this sort of stuff happening, we have ways to blacklist people. Right. Or actually blacklist (laughs) (laughs) non-people. And we did that. And it was specifically when this one bot got banned. Oh, hey, all of a sudden, response times are normal again. Right. Which was good. But I did also want to solve, number one, rate learning, which still needs to happen. But then number two, like bots don't care about recent downloads. Right. So rather than having a crawler policy that may, people may or may not follow, let's figure out how to make that not super slow. So I deployed that last night. I just created a materialized view that I refresh mm. in the update download script. I love materialized views. How did we ever <laughs> live without materialized views? I don't know. How do people live without them on a regular basis in Rails apps? Materialized views, views, the whole thing. I don't know how to do I'll tell you what. It. Working on this and then the app I'm on at work, which like... Everything is super funky with associations and callbacks in this thing. And I wanted to go add a metric that was based off of an association that was already there. And I tried writing a test and learned, oh, that association doesn't actually work. (laughs) Just going between that and this application, which uses SQL and all of the neat features of SQL very extensively. Like it's maybe it's really given me appreciation for diesel and like that I did a decent job with it. <laughs> it just feels so much better. Well, that's good. I don't know. I mean, I, I was thinking like materialized views, how did we ever do without them, right? Like part of the overhead to them is it, it is just caching. And so it's another thing you need to figure out how to invalidate. The answer is that most of the time it's easy to figure out how to invalidate it. In this case, you just you just probably do it on a regular basis, right? There's no yes. like invalidating event that happens. It's just like, let's refresh it every X. Right. Well, because if you needed it, if you need it to be real time, you probably don't want a materialized view in the first place. I mean, I've seen materialized views used that essentially are real time by just saying like, we want basically saying we want to read this complex data a lot more than we're ever going to write anything that makes it invalid. Sure. That's fair. And so I want it stored in this format and then I will just recompute it every time that I write it. And if that's an okay trade-off to make, that's fine. Or if it's like near real time is good enough, right? Like every 10 minutes or something is good enough. Like it is in this case. However, I don't know however often you do it, but. Five minutes, but yeah. We can eventually, I think I'm just going to have to, like as we grow, this is is going to be our main scaling bottleneck. Well, I would ask, why do you need to know how many recent downloads there were of a thing? (laughs) It's nice to have in the UI. It's also a sorting option. If you're looking for like. Oh yeah, I see. If you're looking for a web framework. uh, the hottest crates. Yeah. I mean, it's useful to to separate out. So, for example, error handling is a thing that has actually, I'm curious if failure is the most downloaded. Let me check this. Bitflags is the most recently downloaded crate. Yep. Which makes sense. Most often recently downloaded crate. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the error handling story, there's a new crate that's gotten very popular in Rust. And, for example, so the old one that people would use was called error chain, which actually, oh, I guess that is still has more recent downloads than failure. Yeah. So it's still it's still the most popular. It's got 400,000 downloads in the last 90 days versus 156,000 for failure. But uh, assuming failure does pick up steam, right? The difference between their recent downloads versus the all-time downloads is very, very different. 
it's a lot harder to overcome all time downloads, especially when you're, you know, you're looking at crates that have been around for years versus an, a brand new crate. Yep. I recant the recommendation I was going to make that maybe you just remove recent downloads. <laughs> but it can be daily, right? That's, that's, I think, the next step. As this becomes too slow, we switch it to refresh that, that daily. And then after that, you know, we'll have to switch, take this to a completely different, different service. But mm -hmm. we're a long way from having to care about that. Part of this is also just tuning certain SQL queries and even knowing, you know, okay, a materialized view, while it is a form of caching, is a really, really lightweight form of caching compared to the alternatives. And so I, f I feel like to a certain extent, my experience the past few weeks has, is sort of a counterpoint to what David was saying in his keynote. Yes. Good pivot. Because, <laughs> you know, he talked about like, you don't need to know SQL anymore. ORMs handle it all for you. Yeah. And the idea is like, and there, there's so much less you have to know and so much easier to just let everything else handle it for you. Except if I didn't know how to tune these queries or that materialized views were a thing I could reach for or how to deal with vacuuming and, and looking at query plans, my alternatives would have been just to spend a lot more money, which is fine, actually. But more realistically, like it would have been add some other layer of caching. Right. In David's keynote, if it's not online by the time this comes out, basically, he, he kept using this term conceptual compression to mean like Rails and other things. But Rails has been able to abstract away a lot of the concepts that were perhaps intimidating to people originally. Things like knowing how to write a raw SQL statement from scratch, right? And I felt like Rails has done a good job of that, but I also felt like he chose a poor example because I still do feel like you can get started without writing any SQL, but there will come a time where you're going to need to know why a SQL query is performing the way it's performing. Like, right. I don't think he was entirely honest about that. Like, I, I suspect that, yes, maybe he's not writing raw SQL, but I bet he's had to debug or investigate the performance of queries that active record is writing and then write them in a slightly different way so active record writes a query in a way that it performs better right i yeah. bet he's had to do that and without knowing the underpinnings of how any of that works you're just grasping at straws you're like what if i write the active record this way like even if you knew that like this active record is equivalent to this active record, like i'll get the same results you would just be taking a shot in the dark without knowing like vaguely that explain plans exist and that there might be like a cost and you could look at that as one thing and then like the next level being like okay which one of these operations is the one that's like super costly like okay what right. what, do I, what do i not want to see when i run an explain plan that kind of thing and i think that while you can get really far without knowing any of that somebody on your team needs to and yeah. you will be better served by being the one who does eventually and you, but you don't need it immediately where you did need to know that immediately to write web applications, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I think part of it's also just active record has not kept up with SQL. Mm, like, I don't know if I would say kept up with, but it, <laughs> would you say kept up with? I mean, every major backend except for, I think SQLite now supports window functions. MySQL 8 just, or MySQL 7, whatever yeah. the hell version it was just released and it has support for window functions. They are an incredibly useful thing. You know, another another good one. And and this is one actually that I think is uh, an important point to of why an ORM can take you a level up from SQL, but can't really abstract you from your database. So upsert mm -hmm. is so, so key for being able to nicely do, you know, atomic insert or update, especially if you want it to be performant and the syntax and even the overall concepts of what an upsert is or does varies by backend. And so it's very, you know, what you can or can't do what you can or can't control and how you go about doing it is very different on Postgres than MySQL. MySQL has one form of upsert, which is is similar to SQLite because they both have kind of two main ones. There's insert or replace and then insert or ignore. 
But SQLite has no concept of, you know, insert and if there's a conflict to do this very specific kind of update. And MySQL sort of does, but it's super unsafe and you should never use it because MySQL is non-deterministic uh, if there's more than one conflicting row. This sounds like a job for something like Active Record then, right? It could potentially make it that so for the 80% use case, right, that I could just not care about what the differences are potentially. I mean, the only thing that it, that is like the same capability even is all three of them have a way of saying, try and insert this. If there's a conflict, do not insert it. Okay. Other than that, like fundamentally what you can or can't do is different and not a thing that you can really abstract over. Okay. <laughs> so for example, like you can't even emulate insert or replace on Postgres, at least not from an ORM's point of view. You can emulate it with your, you know, with very, very specific knowledge of well, no, you really can't, actually. If there's more than one unique index, especially, you can't. Because in, insert or replace is, you know, try and do this insert. And if there are any conflicts on any index whatsoever, delete the old rows and replace them with the thing that we're trying to insert. Versus Postgres, you have to specify, if you do on conflict to update, you have to specify exactly which constraint you're expecting to conflict. And, and even then, if you use triggers at all, update every column with what you just tried to insert is not really the same also doesn't result in you know creating a new primary key etc but could these be like is there a way to write a generalized interface that either just like works or blows up and says like you can't do this on your instance try doing this other thing instead well i mean yes so you can do that but at that right. point right that's what that's what i'm saying is that you're not really abstracted from it you're just having a slightly different syntax you're providing a higher it level of a syntax but not an abstraction over right, this, so over you still the, have to be aware of what your database does. There's got to be things that are, like, that was the case. I think all the databases now support, like, the JSON data type. But, like, there have been instances where... Support. <laughs> there have been instances where things were added to, that worked if you used Postgres, but didn't work if you used anything else. Sure, but, but like, so we had support for the JSON data type, but not any of the cool stuff you can do with it. Right, and that's that's where I see your point that, like... I don't necessarily see it as a thing that like active record hasn't kept up so much as I've historically anyway, and I don't know if I'm changing my view on this, seen it as a philosophical difference between how I think a database and an application should interact and where logic should be and that they should kind of like, it should go where it makes sense. And right. where David and others see that like, I just want as much as possible in my application, I want my database to be this dumb data store. Yeah, which is like, fine <laughs> but you know pagination with window functions yeah right you can get the total count in the same query <laughs> i actually was just writing a blog post about this but yeah <laughs> you can't interestingly the thing i ran into recently was another developer i did that i made that change in a client project where i was like i'm gonna use a window function get the count and the paged results it'll be just fine but i think that works just fine if you're using limit and offset for paging but if you're using like anything else like I'm trying to think of the specific example we had where the results are sorted by name and as you're paging, oh, I can't remember the exact example, but instead of using limit and offset, basically we just say like, here's the last name that we saw, mm -hmm. right? So then give me everything after this name. Right. And that works. It works. But now if you use the window function to give you the total count, it's going to give you the total count of records that exist after this page, mm. not the yeah, total right. count of all records. And I think that with limit and offset, that's not an issue. 
It's definitely not. I'm pretty sure you can set it up so that the window function includes anything that was filtered out by the where clause, but I might be mistaken. Yeah. Anyway, just interesting things that you kind of have to be aware of when you know these things, but it's like, okay, I opted into this. Like, <laughs> it seems okay. And to be fair, like, I was able to do this pretty simply with Active Record. It wasn't a complicated thing to do. I just had to write the SQL fragment. And it was a little weird that, so I wrote this SQL fragment and said, like, I called the window, the result of the window function total count. And it's a little right. weird. And we just magically create an attribute. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's on every record. So like to get the total count, I just do like collection.first.totalcount. It's yep. like, okay, interesting. <laughs> and then you have to handle where there were no records returned and say like collection dot whatever or zero. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I kind of assume that if you're paginating, you can safely assume that the table isn't empty. <laughs> That's not actually true because even no. on crates.io search right. can turn no records. One, one point though, on the pagination not using limit and offset. A good example of something that does that is GitHub, if you are browsing commits. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice it does not say how many pages there are, or even what page that you're on, because neither of those are relevant if you're now paginating by things greater than the last thing I saw. Right. And when I was thinking about this problem, like in the context of my application, it made total sense when I was like, oh, okay, that's why they do it. I just can't remember why. I think it was because you wouldn't necessarily want to see things, like it would result in potentially seeing things out of alphabetical order which would be worse than not seeing like the most up-to-date information if something got inserted. It shouldn't, as long as you're ordering correctly. Like, order by name still works. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you might see this, you know, if data changes, like if a new record gets inserted or a record gets updated or deleted, right. like you might either see, see something on two pages or not see something because it moved pages. Yeah, it's a good question why we're not just using limit and offset. I know at one point I tried, I was like, why aren't we just using limit and offset and then convinced myself of the answer? I just can't remember what it was. <laughs> sure. This is one the difference between uh, find each and in batches of in active record. That was one of the big differences between those two APIs is in batches of orders by primary key and then does where ID is, is greater than the last ID we saw, specifically so that you will never process the same record twice. Hmm. I always use find each. <laughs> Sounds like I should be using in batches of in the places yeah, where I'm using. Uh... The only reason to use find each is if you specifically need to not order by primary key. Huh. In batches of is newer, though. I maybe add that to my theoretical Rails linter that I want to write. <laughs> you should probably, did you mean in batches of? You know, yes, yes, I did. I guess there's probably a RuboCop for that. Actually, we might have changed this to use the new form as well. Because the docs here say, like, you can't set an order. And I know that we rewrote these to use in batches of. Oh, right. So. I do remember that. I think under the hood, they're the same, basically, now. Yeah. I remember. I do remember that from maybe four, two days or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so I guess then really the only difference is in batches of will yield a relation object versus in, uh, find in batches yields an array versus find each yields each record individually. Right. How was your Rails comp? It was okay. <laughs> Didn't get to see as many uh, talks as I wanted, but that's okay. Yeah, I, I saw some talks on the first day, and then the second day we recorded. And the third day, I think I went to one talk. Despite having designs to go to many more, I went to one talk and then was like... Was that your talk? No, I went to a talk in the morning and then tried to stay busy until my talk. <laughs> I did like that your talk made me facepalm hard enough that I was immediately like, okay, no, we have to go fix this right now. And we did. Most of we it. Did. Some of it. The stuff that was most most important to get through. Got through. <laughs> The talks that I went and saw were great. I also spent a lot of time talking to people about ThoughtBot, which was fun. There was something you were talking about. Oh, you were talking about earlier in this episode, you were talking about 
like getting a page and being like, oh, I'm getting this page because I'm in maintenance mode and like this is normal and it's fine. And it just reminded me of Nick's talk where he talks about Three Mile Island and the alerts that were going off and like <laughs> the fact that they were too easily dismissed as being caused by X or something like that. Or, or the fact that like the temperature coming out of some valve was higher than was out of spec and it was ignored because like, well, the temperature's always been out of spec, like that kind of thing. And it made me think of that. But Nick's talk, I think, I like I said, I went to the keynotes and like... A handful of other talks but i really enjoyed i enjoyed nick's i didn't get to see it it was right before my talk right so i yep. had to go you were in that prepare. position i'm looking forward to the uh video of it and that's ultimately what i tell people about going to conferences is like all of the talks are recorded people aren't <laughs> and the people that you have a chance to meet and talk with are here right now yeah and so like go to talks if you don't have a reason to miss a talk but you know if you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody that you're enjoying just be like i'm going to continue having this conversation <laughs> yeah no i agree my, my metric is always like is the speaker going to be affected by me being there and or will the experience i have be dramatically different seeing it in person than seeing a recording later right and that's what ultimately the talks i did go to were largely influenced by the people i knew we were going to have on the podcast the next day <laughs> it's like I'm going, I'm going to be talking to these people and so we did record five episodes of the show which will come out over the next 10 to 12 weeks or so that people can hear we'll work them in but there were a lot of good things eileen talked about kind of scaling rails which i i found more to be a call of like all of the things you're doing inside your own applications that you consistently do to work around things in rails or problems with rails development then let's it's like it was like a call to like give me all of those things please and let's put them in right. here in a way that like people can use and so like the example that she walked through was parallel testing and how they do it at github and how they've abstracted it now for Rails 6 and and there are other examples too that i think you know, one of the things that I have on my to-do list is to go through ThoughtBot suspenders and be like, what in here do I feel like? I could just be like, Eileen, this should be in Rails. But then we run into some of those um, philosophical differences that we talk about. Right. <laughs> it would be really nice if Rails uh, generated an RSpec install. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, w I agree that that would be nice. <laughs> Anyway, I did feel bad when Eileen came on and I was like immediately, are you aware that you broke windows? <laughs> that was a little harsh. <laughs> I did not mean it to be, I did not mean it to be that, that, that much of a like ambush, but, but it was, but it was, I think it was okay. I mean, the point is, is good. It'd be nice to come up with something that generates something that gave a good experience for everybody and also worked for everybody. But I don't know if that, I don't know. I don't know if it exists. I just want us to generate for Postgres by default and also drop support for SQLite. Oh, why drop support for SQLite? Nobody's running Rails apps with SQLite in production? Right. Yes, exactly. And the fact that we have to make everything work also on SQLite limits our ability to do a lot of things. So what would that look like? Do you think, do you think it would look like pulling SQLite's adapter into a gem and just being like, here's a gem for SQLite if you want to use it? Yeah, but then not maintaining it. Right, right. Not having it, like finding somebody to maintain it and have it not live under Rails. And even then, probably just letting it die because as soon as that happens, I would start changing the internals of the connection adapter so that we could actually assume like, yo, no, yeah, we're actually always talking over a network connection. I imagine as soon as this episode goes out, we'll hear from people who are using SQLite on a Raspberry Pi with a Rails app or something like that. Cool. Rails 5.2 continues to work with SQLite. <laughs> Rails 5.2 forever. For your Raspberry Pi. Then they're going to blame you when five years from now they're running some old insecure version of Rails on an Internet of Things device that can now be hacked and it's going to be all your sure. fault. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. 
SQLite was, you know, the first database that we added support for in Diesel other than Postgres. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense for Rust because Rust is a language that has a lot of use in the embedded space. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that nobody has done anything embedded with Rails, but boy, that is not the, the main use case. And it's not one that I think is worth continuing to hamper development for the rest of the framework just to support that. Granted, this is also never going to happen. So <laughs> don't worry, everybody running Rails on a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> You're safe because this will never actually happen. As much You're as I safe love it because too. it's not up to Sean. Yeah. Okay. Should we wrap up? Sure. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 153. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.